Hey, thanks for tuning in to a Sunday service. This week, we'll hear a message from Pastor Andy Bowles. There is a culture around us today that is doing its best to distort facts. As a matter of fact, we, we've got news sources that have been invented to disprove other news sources that have fake news and all of this kind of stuff. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? Whoo! Make your head spin, right? But in the end of the day, what is proven, at the end of the day, what is experienced, at the end of the day, what is formulated, at the end of the day, what remains after the strainer is finished is obviously something that is factual. As a matter of fact, I think we have a generation that is so craving facts. Well, we, we've invented that this phrase that we use, the, the younger generations, younger than me. Dang, I'm getting old. Um, younger than, be quiet. I didn't ask for any comments. Uh, <laughs> that, that has invented a phrase that, that is literally, in my opinion, a plea, a cry from the older generations just to be honest about things and to be real about things and, and quit being so assumptuous about things and misleading about things and instead go right to the heart of the matter with some things. And the, the generations that are a little bit younger than me, maybe a lot younger than some of you others and maybe right with the rest of you guys, you didn't think I wasn't going to throw you under the bus too, right? There's a phrase and this phrase is spitting facts. You guys heard of the phrase, spitting facts. He do be spitting facts, though. If I'm giving you a more complete phrase, that he do be spitting facts. What that means is, is that person is given one fact right after another fact, after another fact, after another fact. And I believe since we're not in a series of messages and I've got a little bit more freedom this morning, what I want to do with you is just spit some facts. If you got your Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2. If not, it's going to be on the board. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians is in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you've done any study, here's a historical fact of the Bible. Galatians was written in between 46 and 49 AD. If you were to put the New Testament in chronological order, Galatians would be the first one, not Matthew. It is the earliest New Testament writing, as Job is the earliest Old Testament writing. And if you were to put your Old Testament in chronological order, it wouldn't be Genesis, it would be Job. As a matter of fact, Job is one of the oldest known human writers writing literature forms known to man. Here in Galatians, Paul the Apostle is writing to the churches, plural, of Galatia. As a matter of fact, there's different regions that are represented when Paul writes this to the churches, plural, to the area, like the state of Mississippi, of Galatia. The providences of Pontus, of Galatia, of Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are the, the church areas that Paul is writing to. What is Paul writing about as he writes? If you've ever read these six chapters, which I encourage you to do, it'll take about 35 minutes to read through these six chapters. You would just sit there in awe of all the Holy Spirit is revealing through Paul the Apostle to those churches and ultimately to us. But Paul starts off very factual in the beginning. As a matter 
of fact, Paul has built such a relationship with these churches that he can just come out of the gate spitting facts. He can come out of the gate just saying, hey guys, this is the way it is. And so how does he do it in chapter one, verses six? And if you were to follow this flow all the way to chapter two, verse 15, Paul says, don't be misunderstood. God has called me in a specific time of history to be an apostle born out of due time to replace Judas, ultimately really the one who fell, hung himself and, and was not a true apostle. Paul says, I'm the one that stepped up and I'm going to defend myself as the apostle that God has given. And not just am I the apostle that God has given to, to you, the Gentiles, as Peter and John has given to the Jews. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I came and preached to you again. If you want to be able to spit facts, if you want to be able to speak truthfully to someone, it means two things. You've got to have a love that is so unconditional that the person to whom you're talking to does not question whether or not what you're saying is for their benefit. And you've got to have a relationship. Are you guys with me? I mean, there's got to be a relationship built. Let me give you just a quick example. Tell your children to do something. <laughs> Maybe it's a poor example. Tell your children to do something and watch the response. If you've got a relationship with your child and you ask them to do something, they might look at you a little sideways, but ultimately they know because I've got a relationship with this individual that I'm going to respond kindly to them. But you go out into somewhere else, Walmart or, or the ballpark, and you grab another child by the arm and you tell them to do something and see how quickly it's done. One person responds to you through relationship because of love and hopefully will be obedient. Your child. <laughs> The other's going to look at you a little weird and like, who in the world are you? I don't know who you are. Paul, out of a relationship with these churches, respond to him because he knows that, uh, that the churches know that, that Paul loves them. And so therefore he can come out of the gate and say, don't let nobody trick you into thinking that I'm not the one God sent unto you to preach you this message. But then on top of that, how come you've allowed somebody to trick you into believing that salvation comes? comes to you in any other way or means but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul, again, out the chute, one right after the other. As a matter of fact, in chapter one, the beginning of chapter two, the, the, the conversation just kind of flows. Paul talks about a situation that he had with Peter to where he and Peter had a disagreement and they had to come face to face to settle their problem again. He's just given historical fact in the moment. But then we pick up in chapter two, verse 15. This is what Paul, by Holy Spirit inspiration, says. We who are Jews by nature, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not of the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if... While we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For though, 
for, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Now this verse 20 is a verse that some of you guys might recognize. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I know that's a large passage of scripture to read. We're going to get into that passage of scripture in just a minute and kind of dissect it. But again, to give some background, what's happening is there is the blending of a Jude-Christian type mentality and a Gentile type background. To give you the idea of those two different types of lifestyles, you've got Jews who grew up under the oppression of the law and all they knew was the law and the law tells them to do this and the law tells them to do that and they're supposed to obey the law here in life and there in life and they could not escape the oppression of the law but when they gave their lives to Jesus they felt a freedom from the law but it was still a baggage in their background. We, we hear a story like that and we're prone to isolate or categorize that story in a setting of history, although it be factual and not allow it to really do anything to us. Let, let, me, let, me, let me just see if I can rephrase what we've got here. We've got Jews who have become Christians who are still struggling between their freedom in Christ through the gospel and the law that they learned as a child. Just like some of you guys have grown up in certain scenarios of life. You, some of you guys grew up and you didn't have a dad in your home and, and not having a dad in your home, now you've grown up and you've got this different perspective of life. But still there's this baggage of not having a dad in the background and it's affecting you in your current situation. Maybe it's not just a dad. Maybe it's the absence of mom and dad. Maybe it's not that. But maybe it's that you experience drugs for the first time as a young teenager. And all of that is in your background. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you were physically abused as a young person and that's in your background, but you've tread in some areas of truth and you've been set free, but still and yet, you know you've got freedom, but there's something still in the background that is nagging you. You see, that's where they're at. And then you've got Gentiles over here who have been so oblivious to truth that's why, go back to verse 15, and this is why that statement is so pungent. He says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Understand that in the Jewish mind, there's two categories. There's us and there's them. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. Paul is going into a Gentile land, a land that is, is quote unquote, heathens and pagans. How many of you guys ever heard those two terms? Heathens, how many of y'all was ever called a heathen or a pagan? How did more hands go up whenever you... <laughs> yeah, all of us have probably experienced that sometime in life, right? That's who the Gentiles are. I mean, these are the guys and, and ladies who are worshiping sticks and stones. 
And they're worshiping ideas of sensuality and, and, and lustful desires of the flesh, pleasurable things. They're, this is that category of people. And when the good news of the gospel was brought to the Gentiles, the Gentiles heard it. And it was so much of a difference between light and darkness. All they knew to do is because they saw a crack in the door was run to the light and embrace the light. And now they've got that in the background, no doubt. But they are so willing to be released from that in the background to where they're just living free. I'm talking about crazy good kind of free. That they're living such freedom to where they're, they're willing to go wherever they feel that they can go in life metaphorically, symbolically, physically. It doesn't matter. They're, they're just free. Have you experienced a time in your life to where you were so devoid of understanding something that was true only to now understand that truth. And it's like, you think fireworks on the 4th of July, fireworks exploding in your mind, fireworks exploding in your heart and, and you run from that darkness and you embrace the light and, and you're like, wow, life is so good. And, and people who have been living out this thing for a lot longer than you have looks back at you and say, you ain't seen nothing yet. You just got a taste of something good and it blows your mind. That's the Gentiles here and here's the Jews over here. And what has happened is the lives of these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians have blended. And there's been some teachers who are still holding on to the baggage of the background that is affecting their current has now come to that so impressionable young Gentile convert Christian and they're teaching them things that is not leading them into more freedom, but instead it's binding them even more so. Things like what? They began to talk about uncomfortable things like circumcision. And that's where I'm going to leave that. They, they talk about a whole lot more than that. There's a lot of rules and regulations that these Jewish Christians are attempting to impose upon these free Gentile Galatians. But when they hear that, that no, 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 Jesus is good and Jesus did die on the cross and Jesus did raise from the dead. But you need to also observe these things that are going to keep you down. Don't forget that you need to be circumcised and you need to make sure that you don't eat certain meats and that you need to make sure that you observe the Sabbath on this exact day, only this day, never anything but this day. And you've got to make sure you do this, 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 and this. Let me tell you something, guys. When Jesus saved me, he saved me from first to last, in and out, up and down. I'm not bound by any rule or regulation because of what Christ has said. He saved me by a perfect blood. I am no longer bound to some kind of rule that I must do. But instead, when I gave my life to Jesus, I was set free from the things that bound me or attempted to provide for me some spirituality within the realm of religiosity. That would have been a good point to say amen at. <laughs> we got to have something up here that says, insert amen. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> he saved me from that. 
And then you say, but wait a minute, Andy. He saved you from things that was to do things that wasn't getting you anywhere. Yeah. But there's still an idea of responsibility. Absolutely. You see, this is what God wants to save you from. Everything that you're doing that's getting you nowhere. (laughs) I want you to think for just a minute. Everybody independently. Nobody looking at their neighbor because this could make it really awkward if you do. Think within yourself. What am I doing right now that is not productive, that is getting me nowhere spiritually? I can just, in my own mind, I'm thinking. The the activities that I'm doing, that that I'm just doing out of method or or that I'm doing out out of a legalism type background where you have to, you must do without it, then there's no salvation in you. And so these things are the things that need to die. These are the things that the Jewish Christians are trying to live by and the Galatian Christians have been set free from. But in this exchange to where when you come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you have received him, the very reason that Paul is writing these six chapters to the churches of Galatia, the earliest New Testament writing, how important is this? Not just to be hand-delivered to one group, but to circulate among other groups, but to say when Jesus saved you, he saved Saved you from first to last, in, out, up, down. There's nothing left to be saved after Jesus saves you. And isn't that a really good thing? Now, what are you going to do with knowing that that's a really good thing? <laughs> Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Guys, you men, all men, look up at me just for a second. Your wife has been working so hard all day long, comes home and prepares this elaborate meal. She's worn out at the end of it. You guys sit at the table as a family and you eat your meal and you're all just relaxed around the table. And now it's time to clean the dishes. Anybody ever been there so far? Did I throw a monkey wrench when I said elaborate? Okay. Maybe it was just chicken nuggets and french fries. I don't know. Pop tart for dessert. Whatever fits you, okay? And, and so you're sitting at the table and everybody is exhausted. And you look at your wife and you say, and you look at the dishes and you look, she's exhausted. And you say, well, because I wear one of these, I guess I'll get up and do the dishes. Maybe you, maybe you point to a piece of paper that you framed and hung on the wall called a marriage license and you go get it and you say, well, this right here, I guess because I got one of these, I need to go do the dishes. Hey, this is a life lesson, amen? You say, well, I got to because it's, it's my duty, right? I got to because we're, we're married. I, I got to and... You, you see, this is, the, this is the mentality that is happening and the reason that Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, this blending of this Jewish custom along with the freedom of the Gentiles is that, hey, we're married, that's a good thing with Jesus. But at the conclusion of the meal, 
I don't get up and clean the dishes because I'm pointing to a wedding ring and say, I got to, or a marriage license and say, I got to. We're under the same roof, so I got to. I don't want to... I don't want to address the fussing and the fighting, so I got to. But instead, one that stands up and then changes this simple act of a thought process of from I got to to I get to. <laughs> Women are saying amen. <laughs> I get to. I get to serve you. I get to love you. I get to spend my life with you. I get to share ups and downs with you. I, I get to share the question marks in life with you just as well as the exclamation marks in life with you. We, we get to do this thing together. I get to serve you. You see, what happened was the Jews blended this thought in with the Gentiles that you've got to because you're married to Jesus. Jesus and Paul says, no, no, no. It's not that you've got to, but that you get to. You get to. You get to serve. Because Christ has saved. And so Paul, when he's writing, if you'll read these six chapters, you'll see oftentimes he says things like he did in one of these verses. I think it was verse 17. He says, God forbid. <laughs> he says things like, oh, don't be foolish, chapter 3, verse 1. Who has bewitched you, chapter 5? Don't run a race and, 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 and fall short of the race because you're, you're giving up because somebody else has influenced you in some kind of way. Let me tell you, the race will end way too soon for you if you do what you do for Jesus out of duty instead of out of love. If it's checking a box, if it's because it's a rule, if it's because I've got to do this thing, then you're going to fall short. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you're not just going to fall short. You're probably going to quit. That's what's going to happen. You're going to wake up one day and you're going to say to yourself, it's not worth it. I'm tired of this and I'm just going to quit. But when you're motivated out of love, you step beyond of what's expected into what's exceptional. And you do what you do because you love, not because it's required of you. And so again, Paul, as he's writing this, he really helps us wrap our minds around all of these facts that he's spitting that, that teaches the Galatians where they have been, where they have gotten to, and ultimately where they want to go. The reason that you came in this room this morning, whether you verbalized it or not, whether it was a thought that you captured in your mind or not, you came in this room because you've recognized you've been somewhere, you need to be somewhere, and you hope to go somewhere. It's the only reason anybody listens the preaching <laughs> unless you're forced to be here thank God you are <laughs> where, where have you been where are you going to go Paul Paul says, I want you to get somewhere here. I want you, I want you to get somewhere, oh, somewhere here spiritually and mentally and relationally and affectionately. And, and I want you to get somewhere physically. And so what, what facts is he spitting about where they are or how they got there? The first thing Paul wants all of us to understand is we are insufficient to save ourselves. We, we, you can't say. 
You can't read your Bible enough to where all of a sudden there's a magic number to where you read your Bible enough, consecutive enough, you had enough streaks on your Bible app to where God said, okay, now you're saved. To where you prayed enough to where God said, oh, well, you've prayed three hours today. Check, you're saved today. It's not the way it works. You, 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 that, you didn't flip that person off who cut you off uh, earlier. Instead, you, you gave him a peace sign and you said, love you. Check, you're, you're saved today. It's not, the, it's not the way it works. Terrible illustration, but that's not the way it works. We are insufficient to save ourselves. You don't have enough power. You don't have enough ability. You don't have enough good works. I need you to hear what I'm saying. You are not good enough to save you. Some of you guys are attempting to still save yourself as though Jesus needed your help. Your works are insufficient. And this is what Paul says. He says, we who are Jews by nature, I'm, Paul says, I'm born as a Jew. I know what it means to be a Jew. Look back at some of his credentials that he talks about. Even in Philippians chapter 3, he says, a Hebrew among Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got all of these plaques on my wall that says I did so good in Hebrew Sabbath school. I mean, everything that you could possibly imagine that would be an accreditation of being a good Jew has been given to Paul. I'm a Jew by nature, but even in Philippians chapter 3, he says all of that I count as, as dung, as sewage, not of something that would get me anywhere, but further down the road of lostness. But then, then he says there in verse 15, he says, and, and not by sinners of the Gentiles. Now, again, it's the combination between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what he's literally saying in this is a Jew can't save himself, even though he's a Jew. And we know that God hand-selected the Jews in Exodus chapter 18. You're the apple of my eye. Why? So that he could have this race of people among the world who would bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, born of a virgin Mary, came into the world, sinless, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died on a cross, was buried, and rose from the dead. That is the only reason that God hand-selected the Jews. They are the apple of his eye for the purpose of him becoming God in flesh into the world. But he says this next, and not of the sinners of the Gentiles. By the nature of the Jews, we can't be saved. The law has killed us. We've recognized that. We're not the rebellious heathens, pagans of the Gentiles. But then he says in verse 16, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, knocks the Jews out, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ and him alone. What you'll find in this verse and the verses following is one particular word that you've really got to meditate on to get. Man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. Even us Jews have believed in Jesus, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Justified. Man, that's, that's a legal term. It's not just a spiritual term mentioned in the Bible. It is a, by its own definition, in its root of, of words, it's, it's a legal term to be 
that man is not justified by his works, that he is justified by faith. There's no way that our works can justify us, that faith alone has to justify us. What does the word justify mean? The only, the, only, the only real clear way of being able to understand it was years ago I heard a guy, he called himself the Skid Row Man, came to a place to where I was in college going to school to be a pastor and he shows up and he's a hippie man. He's got long hair and tie-dyed clothes and just a guitar and he, he's called the Skid Row Man and he plays a song, he played a song about the word justified and in the song he said this, being justified is just as though I'd never sinned. It doesn't excuse the sin as far as saying it did not happen, but it recognizes the sin as it happened and it places it not on the person who should be penalized with committing the sin, but instead on the person who has not been penalized, who could not be because there's no action of sin in that individual. It's placed on that person. It's, it's the idea that you're the sinner. <laughs> You're the, the one who's tried to do it by the works of the law. You've tried to keep the rules. You can't be saved. You, you're the Gentile sinner. You lived a background history of a bunch of pagan, heathenistic kind of things. And, and the only way that any and all of that can be forgiven is not because you, you're real good at showing up for church on Sunday mornings. Though it be five minutes late, we're embraced church, right? No, it's that that you have decided to abandon yourself and all of your works and place all of your faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ quite literally stepped in front of the gun and took the bullet on your behalf so that you could go free. <laughs> it's... It's just, it's just as, this, this is another idea. It's imputed righteousness. Spitting facts this morning, right? Y'all hang on. It's imputed righteousness. It's where he, Jesus, done everything right and you have done nothing right. You've done everything wrong and take all the dirt of your wrong and all of the pure of his right and swap it and now you are infinitely pure and he is infinitely uh, spotted and tainted by your sin. And that's what he did on the cross. He took your sin upon himself. He who knew no sin, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but became in the flesh of man, went to the cross and took upon himself our sin on the cross so that we might, in the eyes of God the Father, be justified by this thing we call faith. Faith. It's not of works. The Bible says, lest any man should boast, but instead it is salvation, a gift of God. Therefore, we're insufficient. There's, there's no way we could do this of ourselves. The only thing we can do is express faith, and that faith is a gift that God gives us. To every man, there's dealt a measure of faith, and we express faith unto Jesus, and Jesus dis, did for us what, what we can't do for ourselves. We are insufficient. Our, our works cannot save us. Then the next thought Paul gives us is we are inconsistent in our walk. He says in verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is therefore Christ to minister sin? God forbid. He says, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul is literally saying, don't go back to where you were. <laughs> You, you guys have heard this statement plenty of times. The dog 
returns to his vomit. And the pig returns to its wallowing. How many of y'all have ever heard that? That is a proverb that later that Peter writes in, in 1 Peter and describes. That, that, that a dog, man, a dog can be nasty. And y'all let that thing lick you in the face. <laughs> Just kind of hit me there. <laughs> so a dog, man, I don't mean it to be too terribly descriptive, but a dog can eat something, puke, and go back and eat it. Golly. A hog, you can, you can bring a hog out of the pen and you can wash it and you can put perfume on it and you can put a, a earring in it and you can put lipstick on it, but it's going to go right back, right? To the mud, that's where it goes. Paul is, is, is teaching the churches of Galatia who have been saved by faith and they're on this walk of obedience with Christ. He's saying, don't let anybody influence you away from the very thing that saved you. If what saved you is enough to save you, then I promise you it's enough to keep you. So he says, don't go back to it. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Jesus ain't going to be the one to blame for this. Go back up to verse 17. <laughs> Notice what he says. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. And he says this, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God, for you ain't blaming Jesus on this. You can't blame Jesus on this. You mean to tell you what Jesus is doing in this verse 17 and verse 18? Practically speaking, when you gave your life to Jesus, quite, quite practically, this is what happened. You went from being a hog and a dog to being a sheep. You can't blame Jesus on the way you're acting. Now, now, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 53 that all we like sheep have gone astray. No doubt sheep stray off. But thanks be unto God that for every sheep there is a shepherd who has a rod and staff that comforts us. Sometimes that rod and staff is there to pull us out of the ditch when we're rebellious. But if we won't stay out of the ditch, there's the opposite side of that. That staff is a, a rod and... That rod will correct us and bring us back into the fold. You see, what you, you got to get right in your mind is if you're following Jesus, you've been saved by Jesus Christ alone through faith alone and not of your works that are insufficient anyway. You're not out there checking boxes from some form of spirituality because of religiosity, but instead you fully, truly, honestly surrendered your life to Jesus and in that moment you were born again and there was the evidence of the Spirit of God who lived inside of you and now you have peace and comfort and joy because the Spirit of God who lives inside of you. There's these birth markings that have happened after you've been born again. You know that you're saved, then now you're a sheep. And not a dog or a pig who's going to return to the vomit or go back to the wallow. He says there in verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I make myself a transgressor. Matthew Henry, a commentator a long time ago in the 1500s, said this about preachers. Now let me just go ahead and preach to myself just a moment. He says to preachers, do not build up on Sunday what you tear down on Monday. I'm sure all of us experienced preachers like that before. Let's go ahead and put that on the stage for a minute. Preachers who say they are one thing but live out something completely different. You ever, you ever, don't wave your hand or say nothing, you know. 
But you're probably thinking of somebody, there's headlines in the news about a bunch of them right now that are very famous that said they were one thing and they really were exposed as being something else. Matthew Henry says, don't build up on Sunday what you're going to tear down on Monday. There's nobody perfect. Now, don't get me wrong. But just as well as we say that about a preacher and it becomes very well known and it's newsworthy, is it not sometimes often the things that happens in our own life with our neighbors and those who live under our roof and those that we see day to day? Right? So, so what's, to, what's to keep us from this? He says, if I build the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I am insufficient in saving myself and at the very best, I'm inconsistent in living this thing out. So I'm spitting facts this morning and ain't none of them pleasurable until now. <laughs> and this is the last one, the inescapable witness of Christ. Say, Andy, what's going to, What's going to help me knowing that I can't save myself? What's, what's going to help me knowing that at the very best as a Christian that I, I'm inconsistent? It's the very fact that you've got an inescapable fact that is the witness of Christ. Look what he says there in verse 19. The very verses that we love to preach on only and exclude the others. He says, for, th for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. It's not what I can do out of my own efforts that gets me there. But this is how you're supposed to live this Christian life. You want to understand where to go to after you leave here because you know what's happened back there. This is it, verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the answer to the problem of inconsistency and a desire to try to save myself. When you affectionately Love Jesus and understand what Jesus truly did for you on the cross. <laughs> you say, Andy, I grew up in the southeast. I've heard that Jesus died on the cross. I heard that he was buried in the tomb. I heard that he rose from the dead. I understand that Jesus died for sinners. Who knows that Jesus died for sinners? Yeah, most everybody in here raised their hand. I understand Jesus died for sinners. And you, you understand that as a factual statement, but has that become the very reason and compulsion of your existence? It is, is it your main affection in life? You mean to tell you how to determine what is your main drive in life Thursday morning when the alarm goes off, what's the first thing you think of? Friday night at checkout, maybe Saturday night at 11.45. See, this, this is the summary. This, this, is, this is what helps the, the Jews who are burdened by the law and the Gentiles who are burdened by a past sin collide here and experience the ultimate place of freedom to understand that when Christ died on the cross, as we follow Jesus, we also died with him in his death. Nevertheless, we live, yet not us. This is the idea that you're no longer living your life for yourself. The reason that you wake up in misery, the reason that you're not comfortable with yourself when you're alone by yourself, it's because you've not fully surrendered yourself that Christ may be in you, not just in you, but taking all of you over every single moment of every single day. 
Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And when I understand that witness from him for me, it is so inescapable that in the moments to where I feel like I need to add to Jesus' salvation to my life, I rein it back in and say there's nothing you can do to fix perfection or to help perfection. He did it all. So by faith, I trust him. When I live in the moments of inconsistency in my life and I misstep as a sheep out of the path, I'm just appreciative that Christ lives in me and there's a shepherd who loves me and is drawing me unto himself who I cannot escape from his witness because his witness is close. How close is his witness? He says, nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me to surrender fully, totally, wholly, only to him, to the place to where there's no longer any more frustration. But instead, there is fulfillment. What does it say in verse 21? And we're going to wrap it up here. It says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness cometh by the law, then Christ's death is in vain. <laughs> yeah, you have responsibilities. But it's not your responsibility to save you. It's not your responsibility to keep you. Only Christ can save you. Only Christ can keep you. You say, what do I do with this inconsistency? Fall in love with Jesus more and more every single day. And do not frustrate and abandonment the grace of God, but instead every single day appreciate the grace of God that is offered to you. Amen? I'm just spitting facts this morning. But I know this, that if a teacher is before a class sharing facts, it's only as good as what is accepted. Do you hear it with your heart? Are you willing to be changed by the Spirit?